0: Welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast series, Patient Considerations When Using GLP-1 RAs. This is podcast number two, GLP-1 Receptor Agonist, What Patients Need to Know. I'm Devita Kruger. I'm a certified nurse practitioner at Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. With me again today is Dr. Ann Peters, professor of medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of USC and Director of the USC Clinical Diabetes Program. This program is provided by Practicing Clinicians Exchange for 0.25 ANCC and AAPA credits with 0.25 credits applicable for pharmacology credit for NPs. The program is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordis. To receive credit for this program, please visit pce.is glp. Our learning objectives for this activity are as follows. Formulate strategies for use of GLP-1 receptor agonists that include individualized choices of dosing frequency and routes of administration. Implement shared decision-making of type 2 diabetes management using available decisions tools and evidence-based recommendations. So let's talk lifestyle modification first, Dan, and how to set realistic goals, motivating patients to strive for improvement. We can talk about different things about overweight and obesity roles, nutrition, and how do we utilize the GLP-1s in terms of weight mitigation and other things that really do benefit our patients?
1: Well, so I have multiple feelings about this. So first of all, almost everybody who's overweight has probably been on a hundred different diets. And they feel often like a failure. And then they say, what the heck, this can't work. But when they're newly diagnosed with diabetes, it does actually reinforce that sense of failure, but it may give them new motivation. And I use it to the positive, And I never talk about failure. I talk about now we really need to address this because we want to help you. And I think that there's two ways to look at diet in diabetes, which is one, and obviously very important, weight loss, but it's also food choices. Because I have patients who I can get to lose some weight, they're not gonna get down to a normal body weight, but they're at a weight and a kind of nutritional program that, that that's a decent one for them. I do CGM on them. I see they're not having a lot of postprandial hyperglycemia. So I work with a patient to see where they wanna be. And I, in terms of weight loss, discuss everything over time up to and including bariatric surgery. So again, depending on the patient, but I really think this needs to be addressed in a very positive way from the beginning of getting diagnosed with diabetes. And again, composition of what you eat, not eating a lot of refined carbs, eating more vegetables and and high quality protein and the things everyone was told to eat but may not eat. Um, and then with an understanding of, of cultural diversity, I work in a very underserved part of town where food insecurity is really um, an issue and people's uh, food choices are very different than what mine might be. But regardless, in any setting, you can do this, especially if you have educators who understand the culture. And then along with that, I like to talk about adding in medications that are for diabetes, but also help with weight loss. And I think the dialogue that we have now is such a positive one because it's win-win, as opposed to, oh, here's a so funny reagent, you're gonna get hypoglycemic and gain weight, or <laughs> you know, gosh forbid, we're gonna have to start insulin right away. So I feel like this conversation can be about success. And then obviously there's goal setting and finding out what's an appropriate goal for each patient and and maybe that target will move. So if the goal is to lose however much weight now, but then maybe when they do that, you can talk about later, but it's all part of the process and it's a moving process that evolves as the patient improves.
0: Well, I really do think it's very um, individualized and we have to be realistic. So I do have a handful of patients when they come in, they don't wanna get weighed and that's their choice. Um, if there was a reason I needed a weight to base something on that's different, but if that makes them feel better or that's how they want to deal with their appointment, I don't have any problem with that. But I have found that over time, because if you're not judgmental, then you're able to get that patient to talk more about uh, what are their goals, how do we move them. And then, of course, I really do think that we want to make sure that they are supported by um a nutrition specialist or a dietitian, whenever possible, because I really think that they have some great insights um, that I may or may not have, but they can help motivate the patient as well. And when I talk about mm, physical activity, I really talk about it more than you know. I make sure they know that I'm not asking them to run a marathon. I, I, you maybe and have run marathons. I've never run one in my life. A five k is a big deal for me. Um, And I want them to understand that physical activity may be just doing more than you're doing now to get patients moving, but that the importance of physical activity.
1: It's just something so important and so vital to touch on. And it seems like it takes too much time, but it doesn't. And I think most physicians don't spend enough time talking about lifestyle with patients because if you don't start with this, you're never going to get to the next step. And the other thing that I think of along with this is also talking about medication adherence, because a lot of our patients aren't really taking their medications as much as you'd like to think they were. And so, some here where early in my um, conversation with the patient, I talk about, you know, are you taking your medications regularly? And, you know, some of my patients are trained enough so they come in and they say 80%. And then I know that that's what they're doing. But you've got to know inherent in this lifestyle portion, are they actually, as part of their lifestyle, taking the medication or not? And that really matters when it comes to outcomes.
0: You know, and I think one of the things I've done over time, and it sounds like, of course, you've done the same, is that you really have to make it comfortable for the patient to tell you what they're really doing. Uh, whether it be nutrition, taking medications, whatever it is, because as I say to them, I don't go home with you at night, which is a really good thing for both of us. Um, But I really want them to own their own diabetes and I can help them when I have good information. So I think you have to make it comfortable for them to say, you know, for the last month, all I've eaten is cake. Um, and so uh, whatever it is. And and then, of course, um, the fact now that we can offer something like a GLP-1RA, which doesn't put weight on our patients, but it actually mitigates that weight gain and may offer them an opportunity, even though it's not a weight loss drug, but an opportunity um, to lose weight or decrease weight, I think has been um, really helpful in convincing patients they want to move in that direction, as well as the benefit we're offering um, one of the many benefits that we're offering by saying, gee, I really want you to take an injectable or you now oral we have, but uh, a once a week injectable that um, here's the other things that are going to happen. You know, you're going to probably lose weight. There's a cardiovascular benefit. You know, you're not going to have hypoglycemia if you're not taking a sulfonylurea or insulin. All of those things I think are just really super um, when we think about the category of the GLP-1 receptor agnus.
1: So When we talk about cardiovascular risk with patients, my own bias, I'm never a scare tactic person. Mm -hmm. And you can actually calculate and you can use the ACC's um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk estimator. But most of the time, I know most of my patients with type 2 diabetes are going to need to be on a statin. Um, an ACE inhibitor in our, you know, blood pressure management, Mm -hmm. maybe an aspirin, whatever it is, they're going to need to be on a bundle. They're going to need to be on a bunch of things to reduce their risk. And I don't even, I don't, I don't know how I talk with patients about this, except that I do. And I basically say, you know, we can reduce your risk for heart disease. We can help your kidneys do better. And sometimes you know, patients these days can look at their electronic medical records and they can see that their kidney function isn't normal and they might get into a slight panic. And I say, no, no, your kidney function, you know, they have CKD stage three or whatever. Mm -hmm. I say your kidneys and you can live the exact same amount of time. You'll be fine. It doesn't mean you're going to go on dialysis, but it does mean we need to give you medications to support your kidneys. And I really feel that by making this normalized, like that, this isn't like some big drama, but rather, oh, you know, yeah, you need to be on a statin, then that's going to help lower your risk. And this is what we give to people with diabetes. I make it so they don't feel like there's a stumbling block to it. And I don't tend to start five new medicines all at once, by the way. I start things sequentially because otherwise they kind of get overwhelmed. But I really, you know, just kind of work them up.
0: Well, you know, as you talk um, in your calm way of presenting that, um, I think that the impact is that you're having the conversation. So I think um, what I hear you saying, and I believe I'm doing the same thing, is I may not be taking out a risk test, but I'm talking to them about the fact that because you have diabetes, you're, you, you do have cardiovascular risk. And in fact, that might be their greatest risk in life is cardiovascular disease. And, but we have things we can do for it. And so they understand that we're not overreacting, but that we're offering them the best medical care are possible to decrease their risks?
1: See, I'm slightly tricky. So (laughs) what I say, which is true, is that the most likely reason for any of us in the Western world to die is cardiovascular disease. And I say, I don't say you're at increased risk because of diabetes, but I may a little bit throw that in. But what I say is I say, you've got to die at some point. And it's probably not bad to die at cardiovascular disease in your 90s and go to sleep and, you know, that's fine. But I say between now and then, you want to have as good a quality of life as possible. And I'm going to give you medicine that will help the quality of your life. Because if you don't develop congestive heart failure, if you don't have an MI, if you don't get, you know, all sorts of things that you and I have seen way too many times, Mm -hmm. you're so much better off. So I actually couch it not in terms of that bad end, because cardiovascular disease is pretty darn common, but is the doing better, higher quality between now and then. And it it, it you know, I, I, I try to work on this. Now, when we talk about patients, when I talk to any patient about medications, I always explain all the options, right? And so with the, SGLT2 inhibitors. I talk about why if I've chosen the best, what I think is best, but I still talk about GLP-1 receptor agonists because in a lot of people, there's a lot of, you know, one or the other. It's kind of unclear exactly which is best at any given time. I use GLP-1 receptor agonists a lot in patients whose A1Cs are higher, where I need it more of an A1C reduction because I'm going to get a 1% or more greater A1C reduction with GLP-1 receptor agonists and lesser so with an SGLT2 inhibitor. but Say in my mind, I want to start someone on the GLP1 receptor agonist, and then I can discuss the injectable once weekly, once daily, and the oral. Um, I don't even have like a very long discussion before I just pull out a pen and show how easy to give the shot is because, and I give it to myself just showing, and I can do it on you know camera, but um, I just show them because it's not like I want to have a conversation about an injectable, I want to show them an injectable, and then I'm going to talk about you know whether that's the right choice or uh, pills is the right choice but i just go through this the same thing i just whatever it is and then you know however they choose to go forward i then support them and really that's what we do but i i i i do give people choices and you know i may have my biases but i'm not the one taking the medicine but i do want to push them in the right direction so that's, you know, what I think we try to do.
0: Absolutely. And I I think that um, not only do I show them an injection, but I try to get them, if they're going to injection direction, to take the first injection when when at all possible in the office or in front of us. And then, of course, we talk to them about uh, going low and going slow with the dosing so that the patient can adjust um, if some nausea might occur. And so we usually say, you know, we, oh, I always follow the recommendations from um, the pharmaceutical company that makes that. And I go low, go slow, talk to the patient in between increasing the dose. You're having any issues, you're having any side effects. If not, we can go ahead and increase and keep moving the patient forward to the maximum dose that's appropriate.
1: When you give somebody oral semaglutide, How do you tell them how to do it? I need to learn from you, Davida.
0: (laughs) Well, I usually tell them to keep the water, um, you know, some water and the pill at the bedside so that they can take it um, the 30 minutes before by, you know, they wake up, it's right there. And that they use the 30 minutes to on an empty stomach, no other medication to get um, get ready for their day. And that that's the 30 minutes that they have to wait. Cause as you know, they have to take it with no more than four ounces of water and they have to take the medication on an empty stomach and not take any food or other medications for 30 minutes. So I think it's very doable. And of course you and I are both used to providing those kind of directions for thyroid medications, but I try to have the patient keep it at the bedside and that way, or, you know, right in the bathroom with them. If they get up, they can do that, and they have plenty of time to get their thirty minutes um, before they they want to do the rest of their medications or their first cup of coffee. And the one ca- caveat I would remind people, though, is that the starting dose is three milligrams, and then efficacy is seven and fourteen. And very often, we like to take the patients up to the maximum dose that. Um, You absolutely only want one pill at a time. And so that if a patient has, um, you know, three or four or five, seven milligram tablets left and you want to take them up to the 14, wait till they finish the seven. You cannot use two sevens. For 14, because um, the way the drug it's called SNAC is the way SNAC is the way that it is absorbed into um, the stomach, is that if you have two pills there, they're still not going to get the 14 milligrams.
1: Right. It's a sort of subtle nuance to all of this, but once you've done it with a couple of patients, you get used to it. But I just want to make it a habit for people because that way it doesn't seem like a too big of a task. But first thing in the morning, I agree with you. If they keep it at their bedside, of course, they can't knock over the water in the middle of the night. But yes, it's um, important that they have it in just there. And that way it doesn't become something that's a problem. And, you know, oral works, injectable works. It's nice that we have the options now to give patients either way. And then, um, you know, as you talked about all the side effects and then the you know, notion of not giving it to people who have a family or known history of medullary thyroid carcinoma, the the few contraindications, but really the side effects here are the GI side effects. And I think that in most cases we can get patients um, to tolerate these agents by starting slower, going up gradually, and then following up. I always tell patients, let me know before you stop something so that we can, you know, keep you on the right track. But I think that you know, these kind of little, little tricks to approaching this is really important because we do this all the time every day, but yes. a lot of physicians providers don't do it as frequently as we do.
0: Well, first of all, Anne, I just want to remind you that there are water bottles that have lids on it. So even if they knock them over, we're good. But I also want to thank you for joining me um, in this conversation today, because I think it was great and illuminating and fun. And I just thought we provided so much information for both the patients and the healthcare providers. Thank you so much.
1: It was wonderful talking with you today. Thank you.
0: And thank you, our audience, for joining us today. To receive credit for this activity, please visit pce.is GLP. If you haven't tuned into the first podcast in this series, please check out GLP-1 Receptor Agonists, Which Ones for Which Patients? I'm Davida Kruger. Thank you again for joining us.